So today we're continuing our series out of the book of John, which we have called Waypoints. Now, before we jump into the text, I just wanted to highlight something that we've been doing here around the church, or at least starting today, which is our 21-day devotional leading up to Easter. It's called Revive, and each day it journeys through a portion of the book of John that we're not covering on Sundays. And it's highlighting some of the other things that Jesus is up to throughout his life and his ministry. We wanna encourage you to join us in a time of prayer and fasting and also reflection guided through this book. Um, It's gonna be available online. There's also paper copies here at the church, like the one that I'm holding. And if you'd like to swing by, you can stop and you can grab one of these as well. But also if you just wanna follow online, we have um, all of it available digitally um, on our website and on our app. And so we would love for you to grab it. We'd love for you to pray with us and engage with us so you can connect with what Jesus is doing and the other parts of the book of John between the Sundays. But as I said today, we're continuing our series out of the book of John. We've called the series Waypoints and a waypoint is a marker. It's a marker that leads you to a final destination. And in the book of John, um, he organizes the entirety of his gospel around seven signs or waypoints, seven things leading you to an ultimate end. Now, each of these are miraculous signs of Jesus that don't just point to the miracle in and of themselves, but they point to a larger reality about who God is and how he's interacting in the world. And so we've been going through each of these points and recognizing that they connect not just with what Jesus did a few thousand years ago in Galilee, but also today with us and what we're facing um, in our day and age. Now, I'm incredibly just humbled by this reality that we planned this series months ago, not knowing where we were going to be today. And yet the texts that we're looking at, they speak so specifically to the challenges that we're facing. And I'm just reminded that God sees a bigger picture than we do. And he's been preparing us for a season like this by giving us the opportunity to journey into some of these stories and to see how God would want to speak to us in the midst of all of this. Now, last week, Pastor Brad shared the fourth of the waypoints of the book of John or fourth sign. And it's a familiar story for many of us. It's the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now there's a sort of a triad or a a three-part narrative in the book of John that is intended to all be read together. And it starts with the feeding of the 5,000 and it ends with Jesus making this claim that he is the bread of life. And right in the middle, there's this other story, which is the fifth sign in the book of John, where Jesus walks on the water. Last week, Pastor Brad brought us the first part of this three-part series and the third part. And today I have the opportunity to bring us the second. Now, each of these parts, they all have a very specific story and point to tell us, but they're also all intended to be seen as a whole. So it's like this. It's like Pastor Brad last week showed us Star Wars A New Hope and Star Wars Return of the Jedi, but we skipped over The Empire Strikes Back. Now, The Empire Strikes Back is the masterpiece of that trilogy, by the way. And if you skip over that, you miss one of the most key and fundamentally most important parts of the entirety of the trilogy. And this one most iconic line, no, I am your father. Like without that piece, you sort of miss the weight of the story in the end. Sorry to ruin the story for you. When Darth Vader gives his life for his son. Now I'm going to put my Star Wars nerddom aside, but hey, I'm quarantined. So what else am I supposed to do but watch movies? Um, 
what I'm trying to say is this, is that this middle piece of the three parts of, this, um, of these two signs in the book of John is vitally important in understanding the message as a whole, and it carries a message in and of itself. Now, as a quick review, the first sign of feeding of the 5,000, Jesus feeds them all with what's the equivalent of like a kid's lunchbox, right? And as he does, um, he, the people, the crowds, they want Jesus to become their new king. Now that sounds all good and right, but the reality is, is that they have their own ulterior motives for why they want Jesus to be their king. In their minds, they had trumped up this idea that the king of Israel was returning in the form of a Messiah, and he would be a political leader and a military leader. He would march into the city of Jerusalem, raise up the kingdom of heaven, and he would use force and might to destroy the Roman Empire and take over the world, ushering in God's kingdom. See, this was the idea of Jesus's contemporaries about how the Messiah or God's anointed king should act. And as soon as Jesus performs this miracle, it's like they found their guy. This is the one that they want to pin all of their hopes, their ambitions on to do what they wanted him to do. But Jesus had no desire to fulfill any of their agenda for him. Jesus had his own agenda, his own purpose, his own desire to come into the world, and it was not theirs. And so Jesus, after feeding the 5,000 and feeding them well, might I add you, and they're full, he tells his disciples to get in a boat, to cross the Sea of Galilee, and then he's going to meet them on the other side. Jesus goes off to be alone, to pray, to seek the Father's face, but he tells his disciples, I'm going to meet you on the other side. Now, as we skip over that story and kind of recap where Pastor Brad shared last week, Jesus and his disciples make it to the other side of the sea. And what happens is the crowds find him and the crowds continue to want to force their agenda on Jesus. What ends up happening here is Jesus has to make some very strong um, points and, and he needs to make some very strong claims about who he is and who he is not. And in doing so, he exposes the false motives of the crowds that wanted him to be their political leader and their military leader. Now, as he does that, he makes this really strong claim that they are searching for fulfillment in life and all of the wrong things. And the only place they will ever truly find fulfillment, wholeness, healing in their life is through Jesus. Now, he does this by saying that he is the bread of life. And anyone who eats of him, anyone who consumes Jesus in their life and makes the entirety of their life about Jesus will experience everlasting life. Now, the text tells us that that wasn't a popular message because when Jesus confronts our ideologies and when he confronts our own agendas and exposes them for what they are, you only have one of two ways to turn. You either walk away from Jesus or you walk to Jesus. And that is precisely what happened. In fact, the text, um, it literally reads this. After Jesus made that claim, it says this, from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus said to his disciples, you don't want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What's interesting here is that we have this juxtaposition between the crowds and the 12. 
we see that something has happened in the life of the 12 disciples that although the masses are turning their back on Jesus, they are saying we have nowhere else to go. The question for us that we're going to examine today is what is that thing that happened? What is the encounter that happened in their life that caused them to see Jesus as he is and to be willing to turn their backs on those who are turning their backs on Jesus? And that's where we find our story today in John chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and they set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Jesus' disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes in the gospel accounts, it's called a lake, but it's intended to be the exact same place. Jesus' disciples, they were fishermen, many of them by trade. And so they understood how to navigate the sea. That being said, it's most likely that they didn't often venture into the depths of the sea. In fact, more often than not, they probably fished in the shallows. They also probably didn't know how to even swim. Because in deep rooted in Jewish thought was that the sea was this dark, demonic, and chaotic force that was untamable by human beings or any other spiritual entity except for the creator of the universe. In fact, often in the Old Testament scriptures, this concept or picture of what we would call hell is likened to the depths of the sea. We see that all over the scriptures and we see that the only person ever able to tame the chaotic forces of the deep is the creator of the living God. And so in the minds of the disciples, not only do they not often venture into the depths or do they likely not even know how to swim, but they're finding themselves surrounded by what would be in their minds the deep, dark, chaotic, demonic waters around them. Now, it was common for storms to really appear out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee. And it has to do with the way the terrain is shaped and that a front can literally roll in over the hills and the mountains surrounding the sea um, at a moment's notice and a storm could be caught up. This is not an environment that you want to be stuck in the middle of. But Jesus' disciples, they find themselves stuck in a sea, in the middle of a storm, in a small boat, in what is already a danger, dangerous situation. But on top of that, it feels like the demonic forces of chaos and darkness are coming over them as well. And yet, Jesus shows up in the middle of their storm. See, it's recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospel, um, but not in John's, that Jesus um, could actually see his disciples from long before they were able to actually see him. Mark chapter six says this, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them 
But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. By the way, I love this little detail that Jesus was just about to pass by them. I think Jesus would have been really fun to hang out with. I think he had an immense sense of humor. But that's not the point. The point is this, that Jesus saw that his disciples were in need long before his disciples knew that he was there. And I think the same is true for us today. When we look at our current, um, the way this story connects to our current circumstances, it's pretty obvious. Um, It's something that I take great comfort in yet at the same time. In the middle of the storm of our surrounding circumstances, I take great comfort in knowing that Jesus sees me, that he sees what I'm facing. In fact, he saw this coming long before I was ever even able to recognize it. And that's the thing that draws me so near and draws me even more into this story is that Jesus is not unaware of what his disciples are facing, but he's also not unaware of what we're facing as well. He's not surprised. He's not unaffected. And he's not sitting around wondering how we are going to handle it or how he should step in and be a part of it. No, what we see about Jesus is this that Jesus moves towards his disciples in the middle of their storm. This is one of my absolute favorite parts of the story, that Jesus not only sees the storm that his people are facing, but he actually moves into it. And when he does, he leaves the comfort of dry ground and dry clothing and maybe even his space, not in the storm. He leaves all of that aside to get wet and to get messy and to step into the terrible situation that his disciples have found themselves in. Now, this is an ongoing and reoccurring message of the entirety of the Bible. Whenever we're stuck in a mess and we can't dig ourselves out, God comes to us. He extends us a hand of salvation. And if we accept it, we're rescued. And I think this story just simply illustrates that exact same truth. Now, it's funny because Jesus enters into the story. Jesus moves towards them, but Jesus' disciples didn't recognize Jesus when he arrived. In fact, they thought he was a ghost because, get this, people don't actually walk on water. Could you imagine seeing somebody walk on water, as, particularly in a storm, as the waves crash and as they fall? And all you can see is from a distance, this figure kind of moving towards you. You're already sort of in a struggle for your life. And yet all of a sudden, this person is defying the very laws of physics and nature and he's moving towards you. I don't know about you, but I would probably draw the exact same conclusion as they did. What is this? Who is this? It must be a ghost. I have no other category for this. But like Jesus' disciples, I think it's easy for us to not recognize Jesus when he steps into our circumstances simply because he shows up in ways that we least expect it. In fact, sometimes he shows up in ways that we could have never even fathomed or imagined. And so we mistake him for something else. We live in a world right now that's absolutely full of fear. And there's terrible news constantly coming at us and it paralyzes us. And it paralyzes me at times. I get afraid and nervous and anxious about some of the stuff that I'm seeing. But I'm also reminded that in the midst of that, there's also some pretty amazing things that are happening. I'm, I, 
I had the opportunity to sort of see a couple really encouraging videos over the last few days. One was of a wedding in Israel. And now in Israel, they're not allowed to gather more than 10 people at a time. And uh, this happened in a synagogue, but surrounding the synagogue in Israel were all of these high-rise condoms. And as this couple who was only there in sort of their small 10 people or less circle getting married, every one of the balconies surrounding the synagogue was filled with people singing and dancing and supporting this couple that they didn't even know. And while that seems like a small thing, what I've seen is in the midst of social distancing, I've seen people draw closer together in more intimate and close ways than I had seen in times past. In fact, it's interesting because I think that on a normal occasion, these people would have walked right past each other, not acknowledging each other at all. And yet under the circumstances, they're expressing tremendous generosity and love and care for people that they don't even know. I was reminded of another story that I saw in Spain where an 80-year-old woman who lives by herself, um, it was her birthday, and one of the people that lived in her high-rise building found out. So he knocked on the door, and I'm sure this is all safe and quarantined and all of those things, but left a cake right at her front door. And as she opened it, what she found was not only her building singing to her happy birthday, but a, a window open to a courtyard of all the other buildings across the way singing to her as well, happy birthday. She was completely floored. She was moved and she felt love probably more than she had in a long time. And the point of that is just simply this, is that most of those people, especially the ones who lived in the buildings across the street, would have never even said a word to her had they passed her on the road under normal circumstances. But under these circumstances, I believe that Jesus is showing up and expressing love and care and generosity to people. And people are receiving it in ways that they would have never done under other circumstances. I'm not saying that these circumstances needed to happen in order for Jesus to move. All I'm simply saying is that he is choosing to work in the midst of it. And like the disciples, we may miss it just because it doesn't look the way that we think it should. Now the storm in and of itself I think it resembles so much more than just a physical storm. I think it connects to any other kind of thing in our life that causes us to lose our equilibrium. But here in the story, the storm did cause Jesus's disciples to lose theirs. If you could imagine wind and waves and darkness and all of these things, and all you're trying to do is the disciples are just rowing their boat and getting out of their circumstances. And they've completely lost sight of which way is north and which way is south and east and west. And they've come, all of their expertise and skill as wayfinders has gone out the window. They have no idea what is grounding them or what's allowing them to continue to move forward in health and wholeness and healing they have completely lost their equilibrium. And I think like them, for us, in a season that we're in, I think it's really easy for us to lose our equilibrium as well. I think some of the things that bring us self-worth and value and comfort have all been taken away. I, for one, am experiencing this. For example, I absolutely love work. I love the people that I work with. I love the things that I get to do. I love the routine of waking up in the morning, of getting my cup of coffee and being with my family and then driving to the office and getting to be with my family here at the church and getting to navigate all the complexities and challenges of management and ministry and getting to deal with all the problems of 
people's lives, but also getting to celebrate the good moments of people's life. Over the last week, it's crazy because so many of those things are gone. And it's so, it's crazy because we don't really know when they're coming back. And maybe they're not gone, but they've changed. And I know for one, initially, my response to all of this has actually been, I'm not a very fun person to be around. (laughs) Ask my wife and my kids. I find myself frustrated. I find myself impatient. I find myself wanting life to go back to the way it was. Even just a week ago, I realized that I've actually been struggling more than I realized. But it took a circumstance like this to wake things up inside of me that had been laid dormant and that honestly had too much of a place of influence over my heart. And as I spend time talking to my friends from a distance now over the phone or text or whatever, one of the things that I'm seeing is that that exact same, exact same thing is happening to a lot of people. Um, so much of what gave me a sense of stability routine um, in my life that kept me grounded, um, all good things, by the way, but they weren't Jesus. They're all getting rooted up right now. And I'm having to deal with the person that I'm seeing and, and I'm recognizing that Jesus still has a work to do in my life too. And I would encourage you that Jesus has a work to do in your life as well. And that these circumstances, although they cause you to lose which way is up and down, they also cause certain things that are inside of you to come out. And Jesus comes in to meet you in that place and to lead you to the bread of life. And so there is something good to be found in the midst of our trouble something good to be found in the midst of our difficult circumstances, something good to be found when all the other things that used to anchor us have now gone away and we are left with what truly matters. See, that's what the storm did to the disciples' life. The storm gave the disciples clarity on what truly matters in their life. When everything else gets stripped away, you have what you are left with. And for the disciples, all they had was each other and Jesus and their lives. That's it. Every other achievement, every other accomplishment, every other vocation that they were a part of, all of those things were now in the rear view mirror and all they had was was what was there right now. I don't want to minimize the hardship um, that COVID-19 pandemic and the quarantine have caused. I recognize there's economic hardship, there's health concerns, isolation, um, that people's mental health is beginning to erode. And there's all sorts of other ramifications and we're just getting started. I'm not minimizing any of those things at all. They're real. They're real for me, just as they're real for you. I have family stuck in other countries. I have friends who've had to move away. (laughs) I have a family who's lost their job, family members, and people that I'm close to who are at risk because of pre-existing medical conditions. I'm not saying that my situation is any harder than yours, but I've come to realize that there is so much that is out of my control, even though I hate to admit it. But what I am realizing is that there are so many things um, that although they feel so uncertain, I still have my family and friends. I still have my life. And most importantly, I have Jesus. 
The story doesn't end there. The story gets even more interesting. Jesus walks on the water. It's interesting because Jesus uses the Sea of Galilee as a bridge. (laughs) He walks on the water to get to his disciples. In Jesus' time, the Sea of Galilee was actually used as a dividing wall between Jewish people, Samaritans, and Gentiles. There was this idea that you could separate people through a natural landmark, and they didn't really want these people to come together in the first place. But instead of it being a wall, I think Jesus uses it as a bridge. He uses the storm and the circumstances that surround it as a bridge to connect people, not push people away. This story is replete with all sorts of Old Testament imagery as well. Just as the last week's passage reminded us of the Exodus story, I think this week's passage does so as well. If you remember back in the story of the Exodus, um, God hears the cry of his people in calamity and in suffering. And he acts, he moves, he rescues his people. And in the climax of that entire story, Jesus commands Moses to make a path through the Red Sea. And when he does so, he creates a path where there wasn't one, a path towards salvation, hope, and freedom, a path that would lead them beyond where they were and into a new and promised land. And here is Jesus walking again on the water to a group of Jewish boys, reminding them that the same God who delivered his people from Israel is here. And he is in the middle of their distress and of their pain and of their storm. Jesus makes the water a path. And now when he arrives, the very first thing that Jesus says to them is this, do not be afraid. I am here. The Greek word is ego me. And Basically, it's the translation that is used often for God's personal name in the Old Testament, Yahweh or I am. What Jesus is saying here is is that he is so much more than a miracle worker, so much more than a good teacher or a good rabbi or even a good friend. When Jesus shows up in the storm, Jesus says, I am. He is making a declaration that he is God that he is the same I am who in the very beginning of creation spoke and stilled the chaotic waters and brought forth creation, beauty, meaning, and purpose. He arrives again in the midst of a chaotic storm, in the midst of the waters and the tumultuous situation and overwhelming circumstances. And he says, I am. Anyone who ever says that Jesus never makes a claim to divinity, just simply doesn't understand what Jesus is doing here. He is saying that he has arrived on the scene and he is the all-powerful creator of the universe. And he will walk through hell to get to you. Now we read in Matthew's gospel that Peter gets out of the boat and he sinks. It says this in verse 28 of chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and he was beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. 
You know, we've often read this passage and we think, I need to get out of the boat. I need to take a step of faith. I think that the point of this text is precisely the opposite of that. Sure, Peter got a little glimpse of what it looks like to walk on the water, but he also sunk. I think this part of the story highlights our inability to sustain our life through our own self-sufficiency. I think this gets picked up in the next story where Jesus says he is the bread of life and truly he is the only one that can satisfy us. I don't think the challenge here is for us to get out of the boat. I think the greater challenge is for us and for the disciples to invite Jesus into the boat. And like Peter, we need to echo his cry, Jesus, save me. At the end of this story, Jesus gets in the boat with his disciples. He's invited in. What would inviting Jesus into our boat look like? I think it would mean we're asking Jesus to jump into our circumstances that we're facing right now. The disciples recognize that Jesus is God. The gospel account of this story say that this was a moment of clarity for them, where they realize that he is the only one that can truly save them, not just from the storm, but from a deeper, darker condition in their hearts, sin. And as they came to this realization that he is the son of God, it led them to worship. It led them to adoration and it led them to a place of deeper trust. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus actually gets in the boat and then they immediately make it to the other side of the sea. But in John's gospel, he leaves out that detail. He leaves out that Jesus gets in the boat, but he emphasizes the point that his disciples invited him to get in. See, I don't think these these gospel accounts contradict one another. I actually think that they complement one another. I think John was very well aware of Matthew and Mark's gospels by the time he got to writing his. And I think he would have thought anyone reading his gospel would have been familiar with the other stories here. He's not trying to contradict the account. He's trying to highlight something that is vitally important, not just for the disciples in their story, but for us today. That it's important for us to extend the invitation to the creator of the universe to jump into the circumstances that we are facing. And as the disciples landed on the other side of the sea, they were met with crowds, again, who had their own agendas for Jesus, but they had an experience with God that changed them. And it was an experience that the crowds had missed. When Jesus says that he is the only way to eternal life, the crowds all walked away, but the 12, they stayed because they saw Jesus for who he truly is. So as we come to an end, there's a few questions that I think are worth our time pondering, because I think the answers are going to help lead us to that place of peace and wholeness as Jesus comes into our storm and our circumstances. The first is very simple. Will you invite Jesus into your circumstances? Will you invite him to get into the boat? Because the truth of the gospel is that Jesus sees where you're struggling. He sees where you're at and he moves towards you and he will do anything to get to you.
Will you let Jesus clarify what truly matters? As we already said, the storm caused the disciples to lose their equilibrium. It caused them to lose anything else that their identity was grounded in except for the reality that Jesus is Lord. Would you allow this situation, these circumstances, to do that same deep heart probing work in your own life? Will you let Jesus heal the parts of you that you find your ultimate value and need in other things besides him? Are you finding yourself given into the deep fear of a stock market crash or a global pandemic or all the other ramifications that could come from something like this that we're facing? Those things are possibly all true and all real, but ultimately we serve the creator of all of it. Would you allow him to do that deep heart work that would expose those things in your life and that you would find that Jesus is truly the bread of life? And will you come to Jesus as your savior, the only one who will truly satisfy that ache and longing in your soul? I want to close um, our time today just by simply reading a passage from Isaiah over you as a prayer and then by reading to you a benediction as well. If you would close your eyes and let me just read um, this passage from Isaiah over you. The prophet says this, speaking on behalf of God, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames, I will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Church, would you receive the benediction with me by simply just opening up your hands as a posture of receiving, and let me pray this over you. May you be people marked by hope and not fear. May you be people marked by a deep trust in Jesus, even when you cannot comprehend how he is moving. May you be a source of encouragement to the overwhelmed. May you be courageous enough to let Jesus confront the idols of comfort in your lives. And may you be people who take Jesus as the bread of life, the only one to satisfy the deep longings of our souls. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us here online. Um, We're really happy that you were able to engage with us. Like I said earlier, there's going to be a lot of different ways for you to continue to engage with the community of faith here electronically. Um, There's also other ways we can have you jump in and get serving and help meet the needs in our community. And so we would love to hear from you. Feel free to call us anytime or email us. Um, Reach out to us. We are reaching out to you. And we would love uh, love to continue to be able to connect with you. I hope you have a great week navigating all the different things that are coming. And we will see you here um, a week from now.